1901, a woman by the name of Annie Taylor climbed into a barrel so that she could ride that barrel over Niagara Falls, the first person to do so. The reason for her crazy endeavor? She was struggling to make ends meet, and she was hoping for fame and financial security. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage, a faith and family mortgage team that tries to improve your financial outlook without having to ship you over a 170-foot waterfall. Our mortgage team happens to be an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, which can save you monthly and lifelong money through a refinance, or help you with a cash-out refinance, cashing out some of your home's equity to use for life. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Dr. Stephen Sanchez is with us. He's a professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and he received his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's published numerous works and reviews, and he's also a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary. He's here to answer your questions. Good Good morning, morning. Stephen. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. It's always good to have you with us. You always have such a cheery disposition, which I love as you uh, take these questions. And our first question has um, kind of a cursory question about the Bible. Let me just share it with you uh, really quickly. It's Dr. Sanchez, do you have an opinion about or a reaction to the movie Journey to Bethlehem? Okay, so true disclosure, I haven't I haven't watched the movie so I can't give an opinion about the movie. Mm-hmm. But I, I would like to take a minute and say, uh, there are a lot of dramatizations of scripture and people often have questions about whether we should watch these, whether they're, whether, oh, they're okay to recommend to others. Um, and that's, those are legitimate questions. Um, I think we have to remember that the purpose of the movies and the purpose of scripture are not necessarily the same, right? Movies try to get the word out. Sometimes they try to do it well. Sometimes they're there to make money. That's also part of the goal. And so I think if we go to these dramatizations of Scripture with the expectation that they're going to be Scripture, we're going to be in trouble because they can't be. They're not designed to be. They're not designed to replace Scripture. If anything, I think the most faithful ones, I'm thinking of the Chosen and others like that, they're designed to drive people to Scripture. And so in that sense, it's like going and watching a play. And then you go home and you say, hey, that's based on a true story. I'm going to read the real story, and I'm going to learn all my details from the real story. If you're building your faith on the theology of the details in The Chosen, I think you want to be careful. You want to build your faith on Scripture, and then enjoy The Chosen as necessary or other dramatizations of Scripture as, as you do. It's a great okay. response. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a great response as well. Well, let me ask a, another question about that, and we'll use uh, The Chosen as an example if we could. One of the things that they use as one of their tools is what's called plausible fiction. They're not um, adding to Scripture, but they're just kind of filling in some of the things, details, so that they can make the characters seem a little bit more relatable. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Again, if the goal is to add things in Scripture that fit with the characters, especially with Christ, that fit, or fit with the storyline. They're not deviating from the storyline. That, that doesn't bother me as much. What I think is key is for readers, for watchers to understand, I'm going to go to Scripture for the final analysis, 
of what the story of Jesus, the, the most important salient points of Jesus' life are for me. Remember, John writes at the end of his gospel, way more stuff could be written about Jesus than mm -hmm. is included in this gospel. So clearly, the presentations could have been more fulsome. Uh, I think as long as they don't go off the off the rails with stuff that you could never say was actually about Jesus, then again, it could be helpful. But really, readers need, uh, viewers need to get to Scripture as fast as possible and build their theology there. As Absolutely. fast as possible. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Run. Listen, we all we all watch we all watch Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I don't know I don't know how many actually read the books. I mean, my mother made me read those books when I was twelve and thirteen. I mean, so like I read the books and then watched the movies and I thought oh, that's great. It's not the books, but it's great. In some cases, you know, the yeah. movies are good, but in other cases we get right back to the text. I think that's the key. Yeah. That's where we get the meat. Okay, so second question for you this morning is from Roslyn, and she's asking, she's taking us back to Daniel. Um, she's asking, did Daniel bow to the golden image since it stresses that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did not? Uh, Daniel is not mentioned in that story, right? Daniel is not around for that one. Ah. And so he, he doesn't end up in the fiery furnace. And where is Daniel at that time? I'd love to suggest he scheduled a vacation and made sure, made sure he was out of town, if you know what I mean. So, so, so that he didn't have to so that he didn't have to bow. Huh. So he's not mentioned in that one because maybe he just wasn't he he in he, that he situation was, he was able to he had a business trip he's like i'm out of town yeah i mean it seems complete it would be completely out of character for yeah. daniel to bow down to Absolutely. that statue right yeah because right, right. he stood up for so, the, the fiery furnace and that's right that's right uh okay. no, the, the the lions and the, the, lions. the prayer and yeah. right so it makes sense that he's out of town Okay. No, no, I, I, I hear that. Part of me is just giggling because of the plausible fiction, because we don't know, because he's not listed there. Mm -hmm. Right. But right. if we know the character of Daniel, he, he would not have bowed. Yeah. Correct. That, that makes the most sense. This is a guy who says, oh, the king just said, don't pray to anybody except God. That's nice. I'm going home for lunch, and I'm going to pray like I usually do. With the windows That's open. The, with the windows open so everybody can, <laughs> can see, see me. me. And, and I know it's a setup. I'm going to do it anyway. Wow. That's the kind of character Daniel is. He, 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 really, he really pays the price. He pays the ultimate price. And I have yeah. to say, Daniel's one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. He is an amazing man. And I love when the angels come to him to, to answer his prayers or to talk to him about something. They call him beloved. But he's a right. beloved man. Yeah. You know, one wow. thing that's fascinating about the Daniel passage as well is towards the end of the book, he has all kinds of questions. Mm. And, God, and God says, that's great, Daniel. I'm not going to answer those questions for you. Just shut up that book and you can move along. Mm. And he, but wait, wait, I, I, what? Yep. Nope. That's it. All done. You can move <laughs> along. And it's important because we all have so many questions, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And about what God's doing in our lives, about what he's going to do in the future, about why he done did that in the past. We have all kinds of questions, and we don't always get the answers. We're, we're going to wait for answers. This is Open Line Chat with Dr. Stephen Sanchez of the Moody Bible Institute. And so we're asking questions. You still can squeeze yours in at 423-629-8900. Dr. Sanchez, another question has come in, and it's 
it's a it's a doozy, I would say. It's what does it mean to blaspheme God and where can I find it in scripture? Okay, so <clears throat> I think we have two so just narrowing in on what the point of the question is, if the person is re- potentially referring to uh, the passage in Luke 12, where Jesus is, igno- is telling, reminding his disciples, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but everyone who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If that's the passage that the person is talking about, which I suspect it is, right? this is something that really many would suggest can only be could only have been committed while Jesus was alive on the earth and ministering and it's the attribution of Christ's work to Satan to something else to another authority another source of power Christ is on earth he's doing lots of things people are acknowledging them but some you know were denying them and we're in fact attributing Jesus' works to demons and things like that. Mm. And so in that sense, what that person is doing is they're denying the power of Christ, the Son of Man in particular, there he is on earth. And so that's unlikely something that that particular passage would be applicable to us as we live our lives today. On the other hand, if we go a little bigger, um, what does it mean to dishonor God? What does it mean to say things about him that are not true? What does it mean to deny his power, his authority, his expectations in our lives, in a very real sense, to deny the gospel is to deny who God is with the ultimate penalty. Those who deny God end up spending eternity apart from him. And that, of course, would be the ultimate punishment for that disrespect. Wow. So okay. I just I just want to follow up. Are you saying that blasphemy in the way that it was written in Luke can't happen today because Jesus is not in... In, on the earth with us? That, yeah, that, that's a that's a strong interpretation, a popular one. That, that that particular thing, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there is something that was connected to Jesus' ministry at mm. that time. Huh. Okay. But then in our time, of course, rejecting and denying God Himself will lead you to a time of an uh, eternity apart from Him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no. Uh, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after uh-huh. this, the judgment. And so, mm. in that regard. There is no forgiveness after a person rejects Christ forever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Wow, that's sobering. Uh, yeah. Dr. Sanchez, thank you so much. We've got one more question for you. It's kind of multi-layered, so I'm just going to read this to you. Um, and our friend is asking, we know that Christ is the head of the church. In the running of a local congregation at a church, who does Scripture indicate should make the decisions for the church? Is it mainly the pastor or only the deacons or a combination of pastor and deacons? Or should the congregation be allowed to have a say in helping him make them decisions? What does Scripture say about this? Uh, I think I think Scripture says neither. I think Scripture says that it's the elders who should make the decision. Uh, and what I see in Scripture is a a form of leadership that we would describe as plural leadership. Not one person in charge, not one person with all the authority, not, not a CEO-style pastor, but rather a group of men who are the shepherds of the church, entrusted with that authority to lead. Now, of course, they have to submit themselves to Christ, who is the head. And these men can behave poorly and not do things perfectly because they are humans, um, but they do have an obligation to lead as true shepherds, following the good shepherd. And so they can't just turn the church into their own little personal kingdoms. 
They have to honor Christ in the way they lead because they are shepherds leading a flock for Christ. And they will submit themselves to Christ and they will pray and they will follow his lead. And in that, in that sense, Christ leads the church through the leadership, through the elders. So what if, uh, I guess maybe denominationally, some churches have deacons and not elders, and some have elders and some have several pastors under the pastor. The basic idea is that there are a group of of people who are designated to lead, or are you saying something more specific? Well, I I acknowledge that, that some churches denominationally have different ecclesiastical structures. Mm -hmm. My My first question is, Let's make sure our ecclesiastical structures are visible in Scripture mm-hmm. and so that we see them in Scripture. And what we see in Scripture is groups of men with the same level of authority. Nobody has two votes. The elders have authority together. Um, and so if your church has a pastor, that's fine. My question is always, does he have two votes? Does he get to run the show? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is, yeah, we basically all do what he says, that's just not a model of leadership that I see in Scripture. If you have two or three pastors and they all together lead the, that, that, I see that pattern in scripture very clearly. And so to this, to the uh, listener's question, who's in charge of the church? The answer is Christ, but he works through plural leadership to get things done in the church, right? Somebody has to make a decision about what we're going to preach this year. And a group of people have to decide how are we going to spend the budget? I think Christ is working through those men to get that work done. Okay. okay. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And then just kind of the last part of this person's questions talks about should the congregation have a say in that? Now that that that's taking that base and making it very wide as far as scripture you're talking about uh in scripture it's more the 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 plural elder leadership where they are submitting to Christ and they are working together. But what about the congregation? Should they have a say according to scripture? Kind of like a vote yeah. when the congregation comes I, together I, to vote. You know, you might I understand that people want to make distinctions about congregationalism or no congregationalism. Let's back it up one second and say, if I'm a leader, does it make sense that I just want to impose my will on the people that I'm leading? Mm. That, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? I, I may be, I am the husband in my home, but I would be foolish to Im- simply impose my will upon my family without asking or checking or soliciting input or feedback. So so some congregations might say, yep, we get a vote. And others would say, no, it's not a democracy. You don't get to vote. But even in those cases, it would seem to me that the leadership would take great pains to make sure they understand the adults that they're leading. Because in our day and age, people get up and leave. And it's just bad leadership Mm -hmm. to impose your will without at least trying to actively understand and provide feedback loops with the people that you're trying to lead. 